Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That. Episode 10, Exile and Terror. They agreed on almost nothing. Well, nothing apart from their shared desire to wrest their homeland of Lower Canada away from the control of Great Britain. It was January 2nd, 1838, a winter of defeat for the Patriot. The leaders had fled through the cold woods and across frozen streams over the border. Now, exiles in a foreign land, they gathered in the town of Middlebury, Vermont. It was time to decide what to do next. They weren't many miles from home, just further up the Richelieu River and across Lake Champlain. But they were far from where they wanted to be. That is, an independent Republic of Lower Canada. And they couldn't agree amongst themselves on the way forward. Louis-Joseph Papineau was there, the father and symbol of the Patriot cause, yet a man too who had played such an ambiguous part in the events of the last few months. Papineau had been at Saint-Denis at the start, but then he left. Where did he go? And why had he left so soon? Many wanted to know. Other men had stepped to the front of action in November and December of 1837. Some of those were no longer alive. Others now felt it was time to get very serious and to cast off any moderation. Papineau urged caution. He warned that now was not the time to act too quickly. They needed the Americans on side, and not just some Americans, but ideally powerful Americans and the American government itself. This would take time. But others spoke against the cautious Papineau. The young doctor with a mouthful of a name, Cyril Hector Octave Coté. Coté spoke for the more strident, radical faction. The Patriot needed to act and act now, he said. What's more, Coté had been a long proponent of more radical liberal reforms, and he insisted that now was the time to put them into place. The issue that generated the most angst and, for some, admiration was the call to end seigneurial tenure and all of the duties and dues associated with it. Now, Papineau was himself a seigneur, and he clearly did not agree. But others at this meeting did. These men had just lived through disappointment. They had put themselves to the test, had crossed through a doorway out of a world where they talked about reform and into a world where they were rebels and, they still hoped, revolutionaries. Many others had drifted away, too scared, too timid to follow. In this meeting, Papineau and the more hesitant were beaten back. It was time for the revolutionaries to step forward and take charge in the Patriot movement. The defeats of November and December didn't mean anything. These Patriots were only getting started. Okay, this week we follow the rebel forces as they move into exile and then determinedly try to restart the rebellions in Upper and Lower Canada. We'll be moving through the year 1838, from the meeting in Middlebury at the very outset of January, and through the many planned attempts to reignite the rebellion. 
We'll also look to how the governing forces in the colony dealt with those rebels they had captured. It's one thing to arrest someone for treason, but what do you do with such alleged criminals once you have them? Should you execute men for treason? Or at least set a few examples? Or is leniency the best option? Can you even be certain that the justice system will work if you rely on trial by jury and the juries are made up of people that either won't convict, as in Lower Canada, or will likely convict but be much too harsh about it, as in Upper Canada? That's why they call these the rebellions of 1837 and 1838, because it wasn't all about 1837 and we're not done yet. William Lyon Mackenzie didn't even wait until the year was out. Mackenzie had fled from the debacle at Montgomery's Tavern and ended up in Buffalo, New York. On 13th December, he gathered a small group of men together and sailed them over to Navy Island, which sat in the Niagara River just across the border into Upper Canada and only just barely upriver from the falls. Mackenzie read a proclamation declaring the independence of Upper Canada from the tyrannical British yoke. And then, well, he waited. The plan was twofold. First, to serve as a symbol for rebels in Upper Canada, an assertion of continued rebellion. And second, Mackenzie also hoped to instigate some kind of conflagration right on the border, which could draw the Americans into the conflict. Mackenzie knew that rebellion would be tough going against the British on his own, but if he had American allies, well, that was a whole different ballgame. Now, he didn't do too well on the first task of inspiring continued resistance in Upper Canada itself. In fact, the one other major upsurge of support for rebellion was wrapping up almost before it began, at just the time Mackenzie was taking over Navy Island. In the western part of the colony, in the London district, roughly east of present-day London, Ontario, several hundred reformers had risen to revolt. News had come to them in early December, just after Mackenzie's supporters had started gathering at Montgomery's Inn. But it was the 19th century fake news, that is, false rumours. The locals initially believed that Mackenzie had risen and successfully captured Toronto, the call went out for others to rise and support the insurgency. At the same time, other rumors arrived that authorities had issued arrest warrants for local reform leaders. This last threat inspired many reformers to pick up arms and gather together to defend their local leaders. One man, Charles Duncombe, who had represented the area in the assembly, took charge of a force that grew to be about 500 men strong. But even before it began, the uprising fizzled away. More reliable reports arrived that in fact, far from being successful, Mackenzie's rebellion had been quickly quashed. What's more, on 13th December, even as the rebel force under Duncombe was preparing to assault a nearby loyalist bastion, Alan McNabb arrived in the region with 500 militia of his own. This was the Hamilton-based militia captain who had come to Toronto's aid. As soon as he was done in the capital, McNabb had rushed back west to the London district. Loyalist militia in the region hurried to his banner and to organize their own forces. And a little side note here, this is the Alan McNabb of Dundurn Castle fame, 
the historic home in Hamilton, which is, I think, one of the best little historic home museums you can find. If you're in the area, definitely worth going, uh, if for nothing else than simply to learn that McNabb's daughter moved to England later in her life, and her descendant is Camilla Parker Bowles. You know, the lady married to Prince Charles, the current heir to the throne. But, okay, returning to December 1837, McNabb's foe, the local reform politician Charles Duncombe, had gathered together several hundred men to resist his arrest and to aid in what he thought was the ongoing rebellion. But, to be honest, he wasn't sure what to do with them. He led his men first one way and then another. Finally, with news of the sizable loyalist forces arrayed against them, he settled down to camp for the night. He admitted to his followers that, at this point, he planned to retreat and regroup. But the indecision was just too much for his followers. Over the course of the night, almost all of the rebel volunteers slipped away. In the morning, Duncombe did too, fleeing to the United States. So Mackenzie's capture of Navy Island hadn't worked to keep this part of the rebellion going. There was still a chance, though, that it could achieve its second ambition, drawing the Americans into the fray. Loyalist militia had gathered across from the island and attempted to repulse Mackenzie from his position on Canadian soil. On December 30th, about 35 Loyalists rode across to the American shore to capture a ship, the Caroline, that had been supplying the rebels with food and ammunition. The Loyalists captured the ship, but in the process they killed one man, an American. And that's important. It meant that the Canadian Loyalists just killed an American citizen and on American territory, no less. Now they set the ship loose from its moorings, hacking it up. The Caroline drifted further down the river and fell apart. A small victory for the Loyalists, but could it also have been a victory for Mackenzie? You see, the killing of an American citizen by a British North American subjects must surely have been exactly the kind of incident Mackenzie had hoped for. The news of the sinking of the Caroline spread through the United States, especially the northern states, and with it spread indignation. It didn't take much to convince Americans in the 1830s that Britain's place on North American soil was already an abomination, and that Canadians were toiling under an oppressive, aristocratic form of government that had no place on this continent. That kind of outrage, well, that sold pretty well. And this was all part of what you might call the islands and ladyship stage of the rebellions. Rebel forces planted themselves on islands to try to provoke a response. They fought over ships with the names of ladies, like the Caroline, and then they hoped for the best. The first was Navy Island and the Caroline, but this wasn't the last. In early January, rebel forces across the American border near Detroit decided to try their own luck. They captured a schooner, this one, another lady, the Anne, they sailed up and down the river along the border, at one point firing on the town of Fort Malden. On the Canadian side, Loyalist militia forces boarded a steamer and then went after them. It was like a slow-moving boat chase, and the rebel ship ultimately was forced to run aground. The Loyalist militiamen ran aboard, capturing the ship and the rebels. This wasn't it for the Detroit region, 
On February 23rd, several hundred rebels sailed across to Fighting Island across from Detroit. They were later repulsed and forced from the island by a force of militia as well as British regulars, some of whom had, by this point, hurried back from Lower Canada. And that's not all. In late February, another rebel force occupied Pelee Island in Lake Erie and were only repulsed after a bloody battle involving British regulars, militiamen, and indigenous volunteers. This was the story in Upper Canada, continual small raids to keep the idea of rebellion alive and to instill terror in the minds of Upper Canadians. In Lower Canada, the radical faction that had taken charge at the Middlebury-Vermont meeting also entered the fray. They were led by Dr. Cote and also by Robert Nelson. This was the brother of Wolfred Nelson, the man who had led the Patriot at Saint-Denis. Now, Robert Nelson had been arrested in Montreal just as the government began its crackdown back in November, and so he hadn't actually been involved in the main events of November and December. Nelson had fumed in anger in prison, and when he was later released, he fled to the United States, determined to take his revenge. He joined forces with Cote, and together they crossed the border on the night of February 28th. In a village about a mile inside the border, Nelson and Cote addressed a crowd of between one and two hundred followers. The two leaders could not have been happy that although they had crossed the border with several hundred American supporters, their supporters had somehow slipped away over the night, leaving them alone with their lower Canadian allies. Undaunted, at least for the moment, Nelson read aloud from a declaration of independence that the Patriot had drafted since the Middlebury meeting. It was a rousing speech that took no prisoners in its insistence on some issues that had often divided moderate and more radical patria. In the new post-rebellion country, the declaration promised, there would be no seigneurial tenure. The new country would guarantee freedom of the press, establish a secret ballot and universal suffrage, and abolish the link between church and state. This last was especially controversial and showed that these patriots would be firmly planting their feet on the secular liberal tradition of revolutionaries in Europe. But it would likely cost them support in Lower Canada, from the church of course, but also from a more religious habitant who might otherwise be very pleased by the idea of an end to seigneurial tenure. But the declaration was mere words in the wind. The next day, the Missisquoi volunteers gathered again, those same volunteers who had the previous year, remember, dispersed the crew of Patria trying to bring in munitions across the border? Well, this time, the volunteers and Colborne himself had been aware of the invasion plans. The American government, as well as the British, had been investing in a spy network to infiltrate Patriot supporters both in Canada and in America. And so there were troops ready to face down Cote and Nelson. With so few supporters, the rebels fled back across the border almost as quickly as they had come. There, they were promptly arrested by the American officials who had already warned them that if they went over the boundary with weapons, they would face charges coming back. For despite the attempts of Mackenzie and others to draw in the Americans, 
the American government was proving reticent to get involved in Canadian and British affairs. Despite plenty of popular American anger at the British, in January, President Martin Van Buren called for neutrality and ordered the arrest of anyone trying to foment rebellion across the border. Even so, Nelson and Cote weren't detained long. Such was the support for the Patriot cause amongst Americans in the northern states that the Patriot leaders were soon cleared of charges and freed. By early March then, even after the suppression of the rebellions in Upper and Lower Canada, the rebellions were far from over. The colonies had seen attack after attack. And these were only the confirmed attacks. For every island a rebel force occupied, dozens of rumors of other attacks spread throughout the colonies. You can only imagine what this would be like to live through in today's social media age of constant indignation and excitement. Now the media of the 1830s was not quite so fast, but even so, rumors abounded, and Canadians across the two colonies lived in a near constant state of excitement and paranoia. And it didn't end there. In the spring, the attacks began again. On May 30th, a band of rebels captured and sank another ship. What was it with the ships? This one, the Sir Robert Peel. A few weeks later, a party of about 30 rebels crossed the border into the Niagara region and joined up with about 70 local supporters. They proceeded to rob several houses and then attack an inn housing some militia cavalry. But as the news of their activities spread, the men fled back to the United States, though not before some locals captured several of the raiders. All of this made the question of what to do with the rebel captives all the more fraught. The phrase, suspicion was in the air, doesn't even go halfway far enough. In Upper Canada, all across the colony, loyalists were sure that rebels were hiding behind every other barn. And the government was initially happy to let the suspicious have their way. The government passed laws to allow locals to help put down the rebellion. One law prevented any loyalist from being prosecuted for their actions in suppressing the rebellion. No doubt this helped motivate loyalists to come out in support of the government, but it also went some way towards allowing some pretty shoddy conduct. Many genuine rebels were rounded up in the aftermath, but there's also plenty of evidence that some neutral and innocent people suffered at the hands of their overly suspicious neighbors. What's more, prisoners who had been rounded up in the aftermath of the rebellions sometimes lingered in jails for weeks or even months while officials decided what to do with them. In Lower Canada, Patriot supporters who hadn't taken up arms pressured the government to release prisoners. They demanded due process and that those rounded up face charges or be freed. The problem in Lower Canada was that Lord Gosford couldn't decide what to do. Colborne pressured him to either give the rebels regular trials try them in military courts, or deal with them via court-martial. But Lord Gosford left the colony and his post as governor at the end of February, having ultimately made no decision. When he left, General Colborne was put in charge of civil as well as military affairs, awaiting the arrival of the next governor. Colborne governed with the aid of what was called a special council, the regular constitution had been suspended, 
and the special counsel revoked habeas corpus for three months. Something would have to be done about the rebel prisoners, but in Lower Canada they were going to wait for the new governor. Not so in Upper Canada. Justice for the 1837 rebels began over the winter and into the spring. In order to cut down on the number of trials needed, a law was passed that allowed prisoners to ask for a pardon. In doing so, they would you know, essentially be admitting their guilt. They knew in submitting their claim that they were admitting their guilt and thus forfeiting their right to property and submitting themselves to the possibility of imprisonment, banishment, or being sent into exile. Even so, a large number of prisoners opted for this simpler process. Better to end the uncertainty and punishment of imprisonment and rely on the mercy of the crown. But others went to trial, especially, it should be said, a few who were clearly innocent and so wanted to clear their names. The most famous cases were against the two highest-ranking rebels who had been captured, Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews. Each had led a portion of the rebel force in the home district in Mackenzie's uprising of December 1837. The two men pled guilty, but then were horrified when they were sentenced to hang. Petitions with thousands of signatures came in asking for clemency. Mrs. Lount threw herself on the mercy of Governor Bond Head, begging for a reprieve for her husband. But it all went for naught. The executive wanted to set an example. As the highest-ranking prisoners, these men would suffer the most serious punishment. The British government actually was not pleased. They had sent instructions to avoid executions if at all possible, and to prevent the creation of martyrs. But the local executive insisted, and on April 12, 1838, Lount and Matthews were led to the gallows. The executioner placed a rope over their heads, and they were hanged from the neck until they were dead. John George Lampton, otherwise known to history as Lord Durham, was going to fix it all. The previous summer, in July of 1837, after the Russell Resolutions but before the outbreak of rebellion, the British government had actually asked him to go to British North America to help quell the mounting tensions. At the time, he had demurred. Durham was a moderate radical, or a radical moderate, however you want to put it. Born into the aristocracy and privilege, he was also fully engaged in commercial interests, in mining, and so sympathetic to the business and industrial interests of the middle class. He was a supporter of all the leading liberal causes of the era. Electoral reform, free trade, Catholic emancipation, you name it. He had been one of the leading proponents of the Great Reform Bill of 1832, that bill which William Lyon Mackenzie had seen debated on one of his visits to England, and which had so inspired Mackenzie's own reform movements in Upper Canada. Durham had known more than his share of heartbreak. As a young man in love, he had eloped to marry his love back in the Napoleonic Wars, only to have his young wife die after merely a few years of marriage. He married again, only to suffer tragedy again. This time, it was not his wife, but his children. In a few short years, in the 1830s, the child from his first marriage died, and then all four children from his second marriage died too. Durham was bright and ambitious, 
but he was also more than a little difficult to interact with. While earlier some had thought of him as a possible future leader of the Whig party, by the mid-1830s the government opted to send him out of the country to the work of foreign affairs, on missions to the continent and to Russia, away from the heart of politics. This was his position when, after news of the Canadian rebellions arrived in England late in December of 1837, the powers that be asked him again to go to British North America as governor. They sweetened the pot by saying he would go with full powers, almost as a dictator, to study and solve the problems which had led to the rebellions. Well, when you put it that way, yes, he would accept. So for several months, Early in 1838, Durham busied himself prepping on all that he would need to know, consulting experts on the problems in the colony. Then he also amassed an oversized retinue of retainers and paraphernalia to take with him. He didn't just take silverware and servants, he took racehorses and an entire orchestra. Now you didn't go to British North America as a pauper when you were governor, but Durham really went overboard. He set sail in the spring of 1838 and finally arrived in the colony on May 27th. Durham's tenure in the Canadas would be a short but important visit. Really, Durham is mostly remembered for what he did after he left the colony, for the great report he wrote on the conditions in the Canadas. In that report, he called for two major reforms. First, the union of the Canadas, joining them Upper and Lower Canada into a single colony in order to assimilate French Canadians not surprisingly, not especially popular amongst French Canadians for some reason. And second, for political reforms that have become known as responsible government. Durham himself didn't use the term responsible government in the report, but it is essentially what he meant. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Durham's report will come in good time once we start to look past the rebellions. For now, and as it was, Durham arrived at the end of May 1838 with the colonies still in turmoil. His first task was to sort out the government and to deal with the prisoners. On the government front, he established his own brand new special council. It still wasn't back to democracy for Lower Canada and the regular constitution. That was the continuing and really ongoing legacy of the rebellion to interrupt regular government. But Durham at least decided to appoint his own officials to the special council and to stamp it with his own imprint. On the prisoners' front, he also took a rather unique approach. Durham faced dangers on both sides of being too lenient and too harsh. He had the recent example of Upper Canada where Lount and Matthews had been executed. Reformers and Patriot decried the harshness of this punishment. On the other hand, Colborne had already released 326 prisoners and many in the Loyalist camp were angry at such leniency. Durham also couldn't be sure that he could simply try all of the remaining prisoners in regular courts with juries because he couldn't be sure to get an unbiased jury. A trial later that summer would prove that Durham was right to have doubts about lower Canadian juries. This was the trial of several patriots who were charged with the murder of a man named Joseph Chartrand. I didn't mention this case at the time, but back in November of 1837, Chartrand had been suspected of being a loyalist spy, and in the anxious days around the attacks at Saint-Denis and Saint-Charles, 
a group of Patriot had found Chartrain in what they thought to be suspicious circumstances. They did what they thought they should. They tied him to a tree and shot him to death. When they were eventually arrested and charged with murder, they pled that what they had done was done in a time of war, that they couldn't be seen as murderers. And when the trial eventually took place in early September of 1838, this is exactly what their juries held to be true also, and the men were set free. Durham tried to find a middle path between being too lenient and too harsh in overcoming this obstacle. He wanted to avoid trials altogether. His officials convinced eight of the leading Patriot prisoners in the colony to sign an acknowledgement of their guilt. In exchange, the governor banished the eight leaders to Bermuda. Now, I know it doesn't sound all bad, who doesn't want to go to Bermuda, but it meant being sent away from their families and, in fact, the plight of the exiles like these would be a constant source of public sympathy in Lower Canada for years after. Durham also named 16 other Patriot leaders who had fled to the United States and prohibited them from returning to the colony on pain of death. These included Louis-Joseph Papineau, of course, and then also Cyril Cote and Robert Nelson, the leaders who had come across the border only to quickly retreat earlier in the year. The other remaining prisoners, amounting to over about 150, were given an amnesty and set free. The whole approach smacked of the tone of government response to the rebellions in the period, punish the leaders and let the average rebel eventually go free. This was still an only somewhat liberal society. There were still property qualifications to vote. Those with more education and more property, more social standing were given privileges, but they were also expected to know better. And so when it came to the punishments for rebellion, social status worked in reverse, higher social status earning you greater rather than lesser punishment. And so by the middle of the summer of 1838, one year after the great summer of tumult following the Russell resolutions, the colonies were still in turmoil, though of a different kind. In Upper Canada, reformers hoped that the new liberal governor and his report might offer them some way back into the political fold, and they needed it. All through the colony, loyalists sought revenge. The constant series of attacks on the borders kept rebellion in everyone's mind. Many men continued to serve in the militia all through 1838, ready to quell any further attacks. Prisoners had lingered sometimes far too long in jails awaiting justice and loyalist magistrates weren't always especially sympathetic about the hardships suffered by those they knew they would have been happy to have supported the rebellion in the first place. In Lower Canada, the fate of the prisoners was solved by the summer, but the exiles became new martyrs for the Patriot cause. And still, there were rumors that it wasn't over yet. Many Patriot leaders were in exile, plotting to return. Cyril Cote, and Robert Nelson had crossed over the border back in February and read their new constitution. Was there anything in it? Would the promise of an end to seigneurial tenure stir up mass resistance to the British connection and enable the rebels to start again? And then there was this new organization, a secret society called the Frères Chasseurs, or 
in English, the Hunter's Lodges. Reportedly, Hunter's Lodges had sprung up in border towns all over the United States, made up of the political exiles from the rebellion. There were even supposed to be lodges in the Canadas themselves. Details about the Hunter's Lodges were sparse, but it seemed to be a secret society whose purpose was to carry on the goal of rebellion, this time though, in secret. And so, as summer turned to autumn in 1838, Canadians looked forward to the coming of hunting season with a little more trepidation than usual. After all, it would only make sense that when the crisp autumn chill descended upon the Canadas in 1838, the hunters of the hunters' lodges would pick up their arms and seek out their prey, not deer or moose, but instead a more political animal, the remaining supporters of the British connection, and try one more time to sever that connection. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. I really hope you're enjoying our tour through the 1837 and 1838 rebellions. We're almost at the end. Next week, we finish this part of the story with the Autumn Rebellions in Upper and Lower Canada in 1838. After that, we'll have one more episode doing a kind of overview of what we've learned so far. So, the rebellions, eh? What just happened? And what should we make of it? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast or any questions you have. You can get in touch via the podcast website, www.1867allthat.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, of course, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and the sound engineering is all done by Matthew Hayes. Thanks to Trent Online, Trent University, for its generous support. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.